Dear Father, it is amazing, Father, how we can learn so much from such a short number of verses as we've studied. Sometimes, Father, we read a chapter and we gain a great overview and a great understanding. And then there's days, Father, where we ponder one verse and still can't understand it after some period of time. It's a reflection, Father, of the way your word is deeper than it, it would seem and yet accessible to children. What a marvel it is, Father, that you can prepare so much wisdom in ways that are so simple. And as we give ourselves over to it again tonight, as we do this, endeavoring to be at your feet and to understand what you want us to know, Father, I pray once more, as I always do, that you'd be the teacher here tonight. It's easy to forget who really teaches. For you are spirit, you are invisible, and yet the power of what you do in our hearts is so evident. Let us not attribute it to the work of men, to the mouth of a preacher, or to the ears of our head, or to the brain that is between them. Father, let us give you all the glory as you rightfully deserve to have it. These are things hidden from the ages, prepared for us, made sensible by your Spirit, and given to us, Father, so we may work according to what we learn. We thank you for that privilege, and we pray for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who have been following the study... In Matthew, you know, last week we studied the beginning of Jesus' public ministry as he moved into the Galilee and began to teach. He came back from the desert. He began to move from place to place. He was teaching, and he was performing the miraculous signs that we read about. And as we looked at that, we looked outside the gospel a little bit into the other gospels outside of Matthew, and we noticed that Jesus had traveled already to Jerusalem once for the Passover that began his three years of ministry, one of the four Passovers he experienced during that time. Then he came back into the Galilee, then at that point began to teach. And his fame, as a result, began to spread quickly throughout the region of the Galilee. And crowds began to seek him out and to gather around him. Now today we move forward from that starting point with Matthew describing the impact of Jesus' ministry in the Galilee. How he got started and what it did to the people. And in particular, Matthew's Gospel focuses generally on five areas of impact. I'm only going to list them for you here just for the sake of background. We'll look at these as we find them in the course of the study. So they're going to be uh, the framework for what we do over the next months. But in five general ways, Matthew wanted his readers to understand the impact of Jesus' ministry. First, he relates the authority that Jesus has as a teacher and a preacher of the Word. His unique authority to explain things no one else could explain. Secondly, he'll describe Jesus' power to heal the human condition. Thirdly, he'll show his authority to defeat the demonic realm, the enemy and the demons. Fourthly, Matthew shows Jesus holding authority over the Sabbath and therefore over all Jewish law and tradition. Finally, Matthew will show examples of Jesus' power over even the creation itself. And together, by describing all of these things that Jesus has power in, Matthew is supporting his claim that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the king, he is the ruler of Israel, and he is ultimately the ruler of the whole world. So all of these areas of impact help support that argument. And he begins his narrative focused on the most important of these five areas of authority, which you think is the most important thing Jesus accomplishes in his earthly ministry as far as those areas I mentioned. It would have to be his teaching, wouldn't it? His authority in teaching the Word of God. Because as impressive as his miracles are going to be, 
they always served a greater purpose. And principally, that was to bring attention to his words. One of the scenes that I love the most that's in Luke's gospel is when Jesus gets on a boat, floats out from the shore a a short distance, and stands in the boat to teach the crowds that are on the shore. You know why he does that, principally? Because they came for healing. He wants them to wait for the teaching. So he goes where they can't go, and they're just captive on the shoreline waiting for him to come back. You see how much Jesus wanted their attention for teaching. That's why the next series of chapters in this gospel, as you probably know, are focused on the Sermon on the Mount. That's really the first major section of the gospel after the introduction of Jesus and his birth. And it's because it's this narrative of Jesus' teaching that Matthew really wants us to emphasize first. His authority to explain only the things God could know. But before we get there, we have to wrap up chapter 4, as I said. Specifically, the last three verses, which are Matthew's summary of the effect of Jesus' ministry. Let's just read them. Verses 23 through 25, at the end of chapter 4, we read this. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news of him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering from various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. All right, as I said, this is a summary of what we see going on in Jesus' ministry. From here, what Matthew will do as he goes forward into the gospel is just give you all the details of these experiences that he just summarized. So for now, I want to focus on three observations that come out of these three verses. First, Matthew says Jesus was teaching and traveling throughout the Galilee in synagogues. And of course, he has a few of those key disciples in tow as he's moving around. The Galilee is that area of the north side, north end of Israel. It covers about 2,800 square miles. And in Jesus' day, it held about 3 million people in that general region. So that's a lot of territory to cover. And he does it In only three years, so in only three years, Jesus moves extensively in that region. I suspect he could have spent a lot more time there if he had had it. Because with that many people spread out in a rural area, you would have to have moved around a lot to get to everybody. But instead of doing that, Jesus' plan was not to go visit everyone, it was to have everyone visit him. And that's how he begins in his ministry. Matthew says Jesus taught specifically in Galilean synagogues, which are the local Jewish house of worship. The only official Jewish house of worship that God established is the tabernacle, later to become the temple. But when Israel went off into exile into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, they were without a temple. So the rabbis who were in exile with the people of Israel, they came up with this idea, they instituted this practice of the people of Israel who were in an exile gathering together in community groups of one size or another, establishing a pattern of worship within that community. Totally novel. I mean, they invented this. They didn't have anything else to do or go by. And the Hebrew word for assembly is synagogue. So that's where you get the idea of a synagogue. These places of assembly outside of the temple, away from Jerusalem, is a synagogue. That detail tells us that when Jesus was preaching in the Galilee, he was searching out gatherings of religious Jews. That was the audience he was principally after. He wasn't going to Gentiles, by and large, during this time. And there were significant populations of Gentiles in the Galilee. There is such a group up there, even at this time. But nonetheless, Jesus is focused on God-fearing 
Jews. It goes back to something I taught last week. It's because Jesus' gospel proclamation was that he was the promised king, the promised Messiah, sent in fulfillment of the covenants given to Israel. This is his announcement that I am the one you've been waiting for. It was a good faith offer to Jewish people to accept their king and receive their kingdom. So he's looking for them. Now that's an offer that was ultimately rejected, as you know, which is why he ends up on the cross. But you need to understand, in its beginnings, it was sincere, it was legitimate, it was a good faith offer. If they had accepted it, as was required, the kingdom would have shown up. Which is why he's seeking out the Jewish people specifically. That's the first thing we notice in this passage. The second thing we notice, as Matthew notes, is Jesus did a lot more than just preaching. He also did supernatural acts of compassionate healing for people that came to him. He healed people of every disease and affliction, Matthew says, demonstrating his power over the human condition. And as you can imagine, these kinds of displays of power over body, over disease, it had a predictable effect. Can you imagine what that would be like to see this going on? You're told in verse 24 that the news of this guy wandering around in the Galilee healing anyone and everyone. It spread like wildfire going through the Galilean dry grasslands. I mean, it just, it went like that. And not only were there Galileans streaming to Jesus, the news, it says, travels as far north as Syria. That's biblical Aram, but it's Syria today. And it goes beyond the Jordan to areas that are east of the Jordan. That's either Ammon in the north or Gilead. And it goes into Jerusalem, goes down into Judea from where Jesus was. What you're learning is this. Thousands of people who suffered an illness or knew someone who suffered an illness are coming from as far away as other countries, streaming to Jesus. And the indication here, and it's elsewhere as well in the gospel, is that Jesus is healing everyone who comes to him without discrimination, without prerequisites. Everyone is getting healed if they come to Jesus. Which, of course, is why the crowds are so huge. Can you imagine what people are hearing? They're hearing that whatever you got, he can do it, and he's asking nothing. This is a great deal. Matthew gives us a brief list of the ailments. He starts with various diseases, and that just refers to the kinds of general ailments that come upon people in one form or another. And then he goes more specifically, pains, and that's literally translated from Greek as a torment. Or you could also translate the word torture. And anyone who suffered from chronic pain will understand why the Greek language refers to this as torture, because it has that effect. It's a nonstop pain. So he's taken that away. Then Matthew mentions the healing of demoniacs. That's not a car. Demoniac. A, a demoniac is anyone who's indwelled by a demon. You know, if you're a student of the gospel, this doesn't necessarily surprise you. But if you were new to studying of the Bible, and you know we're talking about healing of disease, and then you see this listing of a demoniac. That's someone who's indwelled by a demon. You know, you might think, well, that doesn't fit. That's not a disease. Where did that one come from? Well, in Jesus' day, people understood that some maladies were not the result of natural causes. They are rather the result of demonic activity. That, in other words, demoniacs manifest either physical or mental illnesses resulting from the damage that's inflicted upon their mind and their body by demons, by the insult and the injury of demons. So as Jesus removes the demons, the people are made instantly well. And we're going to have a lot of opportunity in future weeks as we go through the gospel to learn more about demons and demon possession and how this process works and 
what we can say about them even today. Trust me, we'll get back to this, but that's not the topic uh, for today. Uh, finally, it says Jesus heals epileptics and paralytics. These are essentially opposite conditions. An epileptic is the ancient term for someone who just suffers from any kind of uncontrollable body movement, seizures, and the like, while paralytics are the opposite. It's someone who's lost use of their body, a limb or something. Jesus is healing both. And in Jesus' day, as you probably know, there were no medical cures, by and large, for these conditions. And even today, you know, we still don't have solutions to many of these things. I mean, even in cases where we do have treatments, most of the time those treatments are doing little more than masking the issue. They're just covering up the symptoms, which is all we know in some cases. For example, you can't cure a seizure in most cases. You can't cure a paralyzed person in most cases. You know, we have some limited forms of therapeutic care, but we really can't, can't solve the problem. And that would be especially true, by the way, for demoniacs. And yes, they still exist today. In fact, it's my contention there's a lot more of them than you realize. And modern society doesn't even recognize the condition. So how much treatment do you think they're getting other than masking the symptoms? But Jesus is healing in a fundamentally different way. And I don't just mean the fact that he's not using medicine. He is giving a full and complete restoration of the body in all cases. He's healing in a way that distinguishes Jesus as someone a lot greater than a mere medicine man. He's not a doctor. And even today, if this were going on now, in our age of science and medicine and so on, these would still be called miracle healings. They would still be mind-blowing. There's, there's nothing here that we could explain. And so as a result, he's performing miracles that make an undeniable statement of his divinity. He's demonstrating he had the power to address the human condition by merely a word or a touch. He brought the human body back to its ideal state, to its healthy condition. And the ability to do that to the human body, to bring it to its ideal state, that is a calling card of the Creator. Think of it this way. Only the one who created the human body possesses the power to restore it into perfection. Only God can do that. And, as you might know, and certainly as Jesus hoped his people then would know, the power to do that is not limited to the physical. Anyone who's witnessed Jesus healing in this way should have had an instinctive appreciation that anyone that can heal the body and has that kind of power over the physical body, they would also then understand, it's just a small step of, of assumption at that point, to say, well, I wonder if they can also address the soul. I wonder if he has power over the soul, because as sick as our bodies are, many of us are in declining health or dealing with chronic conditions. But even if you're healthy right now, just wait. That's my gift of discouragement coming out just naturally. Friends, as sick as your body can be, your soul is sicker. Especially if you don't know Christ. It's desperately in need of healing. And that was the focus of Jesus' ministry. That is, preaching, not healing. The focus is preaching... And another way you could say it is, healing souls was the focus, not healing the body. Remember, Jesus' healing ministry is not about making people feel better. This is an important message in its own right, just in the day we live, because there's so many people who are, frankly, fleecing the flock in issues of healing, in areas of, of conversation about how people are healed. Understand, Christ's ministry is not about making people feel better physically or live longer. It's about bringing people to an awareness of the gospel. And for that matter, your hope as a Christian, you know, the Bible talks a lot about the Christian hope. Your hope as a Christian is not in physical healing. At least I hope not. It's in knowing that by the blood of Christ shed for you, 
One day you get to escape that sinful, dying body and receive eternal life in glory. And that's what we're all waiting for. We're all waiting as Christians to leave this corrupt body behind. And I'm not just pointing at my body, by the way. There's others in here too, all right? The corrupt body. Get rid of it and get into that new one that never dies and never sins. Can you imagine what it'll be like to never sin? And not just because you're working at it. I mean, to never even have a thought of it. Won't that be just so strange? I don't even know how to relate to it yet. Now, in fact, based on that, you could argue that a supernatural healing would be a disappointment for a believer who knows what awaits them in eternity. That's an eternal perspective because you're delaying your escape from your body. And in that respect, you're prolonging your suffering in this world. So, you know, getting a a supernatural extension on this life, that's not necessarily my first goal. And I don't know why it would be ours, you know, in general, why we want that necessarily. And so by the same token, the Lord is not profiting in His own glory just because He's healing sinful bodies and giving them a little extra time to live and sin on earth. Generally speaking, the more comfortable we are with this body, the less we desire the new one. It's a general truth, right? The less priority you place on eternal gain when you're feeling self-satisfied with what this world is providing to you, including how your body feels. So, His compassion and ministry, and it was an act of compassion. I'm not diminishing that, of course. It was an act of compassion for those who were in pain and suffering. But it served a more important purpose than relieving that suffering. It served a spiritual purpose. First, the healing ministry that Jesus had laid claim to his divinity. It established, it validated his claim to divinity because only God does this stuff. And if a human being has the ability to heal as a gift, for example, it's still reflecting on God. It's still the fact that God is using them because we don't inherently have those abilities. That was the first reason he did this. His miracles validated he was Jehovah Rapha, that he was the God who heals. And therefore, he's the creator. Then secondly, what his miracles accomplished was very simply drawing an audience. Drawing a crowd. And for obvious reasons, a ministry of free and total healing. It just drew huge numbers. And then once they were gathered, Jesus taught them and he preached to them. So simply put, Jesus healed the body so he would have opportunity to heal the spirit. That's what this is about. And friends, that is no different today. If you want a clear-eyed view of how physical healing would be accomplished in the church today, should God choose to do it at some time in some manner. The view of that in Scripture should be exactly the same as it is in our life today. That is, that God's priority in performing miraculous healings is to glorify the healer, not the one healed. It draws people to Him and gives opportunity for them to ultimately hear the Word. If you doubt what I'm saying, that the main and primary reason God does any healing at all is to bring himself glory and bring attention to his word, then ask yourself this, why would the Lord heal someone that he allowed to experience disease in the first place? If his main concern is your physical body, why didn't he just keep the disease from coming the first time? Why wait and make it come only then to heal it later? That proves to you that there was some reason that he wanted us to experience the illness first so that he could show up with the healing so that then we'd have something to think about. Because if his first concern was keeping your body disease-free, then no Christian would ever contract any illness. I mean, it's, it's patently ridiculous. As is, by the way, any teaching that suggests if you seek for healing and don't get it, it must mean you didn't have enough faith. 
All right, well, there's an easy way to show the ridiculousness of that thought. We all die sooner or later. (laughs) See what I'm saying? That means, by their definition, we all run out of faith. Right? Because if you have faith, you're always healed. You'd never die. It's patently ridiculous. Jesus actually gives us the answer of why God has sickness and at times provides healing. He gave it to us in John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? But look at his answer. Jesus said, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it, meaning his condition of blindness, it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That, in a nutshell, is why God heals. That, in a nutshell, is why Jesus is healing. That's how you have to understand what he's doing in the Galilee. He's healing sick people to bring glory to God. First, to show him as himself as the one possessing power over the human condition. And secondly, to get crowds to listen to his teaching. Because, friends, long after your body is turned to dust, the word of God will continue. That's where his emphasis is. So f- that's the second thing you should notice in this passage. And finally, the third thing. Matthew's summary shows you how effective <laughs> this strategy was. In 25, Matthew says that large crowds were following him, as I said, from the Galilee. Now, when they came from the Galilee, that would generally mean the west side of the Sea of Galilee. The Decapolis is the east side of the Sea of Galilee, present-day Jordan. It spans from Damascus, Syria, all the way down to the Dead Sea. That's the Decapolis. And then also, as I said, Judea and Jerusalem. So look at what we're saying. We're talking about people walking hundreds of miles in the desert. And in an age when there was no instant communication, which means they're being drawn hundreds of miles to see a guy based on word of mouth. How powerful was this word of mouth? I mean, think about it like this. If you could only walk and you had no way to verify anybody's facts and someone told you that there was a healing taking place 200 miles away, you had to walk there to get there in the desert, would you look at them and go, well, I'm just going to go take that 200-mile walk and see if you're right? Or would you say, nice try? I'm not going to walk 200 miles to find out I've been fooled, right? But somehow the word is so strong, so consistent, so many people are saying it, so many people are coming back healed, that it just goes like nuts. They all go because they want to be restored in health. Matthew's description of these huge crowds demonstrates the importance of that healing strategy. It establishes Jesus' reputation almost overnight. I mean, he only has three years to accomplish everything that the Father wants him to do in his ministry. And in that short time, he moves from, at one moment, being the nobody from a backwater town called Nazareth, from which nothing ever came good, right, as as Nathaniel said. From one moment he's that, and then the next moment he's a rock star. He's got crowds of thousands coming for healing. Can you imagine the bedlam? Can you imagine? I mean, there's no crowd control. I mean, can you imagine how that must have looked? And by the way, speaking of followers, we saw last week how Jesus went out inviting certain men to be his disciples, right? Andrew, Peter, John, Philip, etc., and eventually others. And those men, we were told last week, believed in Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, so they submitted themselves to his authority as rabbi. They left their way of life, they dropped their nets, they followed him. Remember that? But now, in this part of the chapter, we hear that maybe in the weeks or months that followed, now Jesus has got thousands of followers coming from all over, well outside the region. So at this point, you might ask yourself, are these new followers disciples? Is that what we would call all these people, Jesus' disciples? And before you answer that question, we need to understand what we mean by that, don't we? What's a disciple? 
And of course, I don't just mean the word. The word itself, you probably know, means student or pupil. But in today's church, we've attached a meaning to that that's not the way it was understood in Jesus' day. Today, if you say you're a disciple of Jesus, what you usually mean is you're a believer, right? You're a believer, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, but that's not what the word meant in that day. And I don't just mean with respect to Jesus per se, I just mean in general. A disciple just meant a student. It just meant someone who was enrolled in a rabbinical school. It was a person who committed to study under a rabbi. That's all it meant. It'd be similar to, like today, like the position of a post-grad student. Someone who sort of leans on or comes underneath a professor for an extended period of time and they're kind of one-on-one developing that person in a, in a course of study. That's, that's what they kind of did in this sense. So what we're saying is a disciple is a vocational student studying under a rabbi committed to becoming like him. One day when they finish that course of study, a disciple would hope to be the rabbi and start his own little following of many rabbi disciples. It would be just like in a university student today who's under a professor in a post-grad program and wants to ultimately become a tenured professor themselves at some point. It's that sort of idea. So just like in a post-grad doctorate program now, prospective disciples in Jesus' day had to compete to get to a good rabbi. Because the more renowned that a rabbi was, the more selective he could be in the disciples that he would choose to follow him. And therefore, the more competitive it was among the disciples to get into the best rabbi programs. I mean, it's just like the world's never changed, right? Nothing new under the sun. One of the more famous rabbi-student relationships that you see in Scripture in the first century was Rabbi Gamaliel and the student, of course, Saul of Tarsus. Gamaliel was the Harvard of his day, and or Yale, or whatever your preference is. And Saul, or as we came to know him, the Apostle Paul, he was a talented, ambitious disciple as a way of giving evidence of his superior academic credentials. Uh, in Acts 22.3, he says, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you are today. So that's how the relationship worked for disciples. Now Jesus, at this point... He's a pretty well-known rabbi also, at least in the sense that he's getting a following pretty quickly. And he's got a special ability. He's got prominence, fast. So when Jesus calls a man to be his disciple, that's a high honor at this point. Remarkably, though, the men that Jesus called last chapter, earlier in the chapter, they weren't even looking to be his disciple. In fact, I would submit to you, they weren't even looking to be disciples of any rabbi. They're fishermen. I imagine that the idea of being a rabbi's disciple was the last thing that those guys had ever considered. So when Jesus came to them on the water and he he asked them, be my disciple, it had to have been a shock. They knew him already, but the idea of taking that role must have been a surprise. It had been as surprising as as if a high school dropout today got a letter from Harvard with a full-ride scholarship. You know, there'd be no accounting for it. Why me? That's what they just saw happen with Jesus. They're receiving a great honor, which is one they didn't request, nor is it one that depended on their scholastic achievement. They're unqualified for it. But now we find, in addition to those early guys, now you have this huge following, and they're not waiting for a call to be a disciple. They showed up from Aram and the Decapolis and wherever, limping, crawling, sneezing, blind. They're not asking to be considered a disciple. They just want to be healed. And as they get healed... They have a love for the man who did it, or they have an interest in what he's doing, or they have reasons of their own to follow him, and their crowd just continues to grow. And it's not as though it's like a turnstile. 
They don't walk in, get healed, and go home. Some do. But others stick around. Later, Matthew's going to report that Jesus has tens of thousands of these people following him around. Tens of thousands. They attach themselves to him. They have not been received as a disciple formally. It's kind of like somebody sitting in on a college course today without bothering to enroll in the university first. It's that idea. They came for personal reasons. And in many cases, it was for healing or food or just out of curiosity or for the show. They don't have, you know, the reasons varied. So what you're learning is this, that following after Jesus, even as his disciple, did not require belief in him as a Messiah. The early disciples that we've seen called, they had a faith in him. That's been told to us in Scripture. But Jesus did not make faith a prerequisite for the crowds to come and hear him or even to follow after his teaching. And as the crowds grew, some, as you know, probably would assume, decided to follow him from place to place merely because of the things he was doing, the healings and such. Now, within that group of followers, I want you to try to imagine this in your mind. If you haven't been to Israel, just imagine just wide open spaces, fields, rolling hills and the like up in the Galilee. And here's a guy walking around with a huge crowd behind him. I mean, like unpack a stadium and make them follow the guy. Okay, it's a train of people, probably miles long. And he would stop somewhere and they'd all come up around him for a while. Then he'd move on again. And within that crowd, as they move, you have some who begin to commit themselves as disciples. Others who are just there for the day. But some are committing. They identify themselves as Jesus' students. They give up their normal way of life. When Jesus moves to another town, they go with him. They leave behind where they lived. And Jesus has permitted them to do this. He even refers to them at times as his disciples. That group of disciples, that is to say within the larger crowd of thousands, that group of disciples within that crowd will number at least several hundred at times in the gospel record because we hear Jesus referring to the size of the group. Later, as you know, he will make an additional distinction within that group of disciples. He'll name 12 of them as his apostles. So, to summarize what I'm saying, if you wanted to classify the crowd that's around Jesus in this part of Matthew, where we see Matthew describing it, you have following Jesus a large crowd of thousands seeking for Jesus' help or just curious for what's going on. Within that group, you have a smaller group of, say, dozens or hundreds that have committed to being his disciple. And inside that group of disciples, you have an even smaller group of hand-picked men, 12 of them, who become his apostles. Making sense? But here's the main point. Here's why I went through that. In each of those three groups, you have both believers and unbelievers. Within each of those three groups, you have both believers and unbelievers. Now, in the case of the larger group, as you would expect, a lot of that group would be unbelievers. They accepted Jesus's Some accepted his claim to be Messiah. Some were saved in that way by their faith. But a lot of the other people there just had a passing interest in his claims and in his teaching. The way to understand them is they followed after Jesus, but they never placed their faith in Jesus. They eventually, as I said, become tens of thousands. And he's celebrated by them for a time. But not long after that, those same followers who thought so well of him are abandoning him almost overnight, especially when the free food and the healing stop. They just go back to their way of life. They're much like people who sit in churches today. You ever thought about it that way? They come in the door for any number of reasons and then they never come to Jesus. 
They're unbelievers sitting in the house of God, but they're not resting in Jesus for salvation. I love the old saying that says you can sit in a garage, but it doesn't make you a car. To the unbeliever, they don't understand that. I know this from personal experience. I, I was in a family that was not especially religious, but my mom dragged me to church on Sunday, and it's almost literally true. And, you know, until I was there, until I was 18 and left home, I was going to church on Sundays. And I wasn't a believer. We're just sitting in a building, you know, against my will. And it's not a church that, that preached the gospel. So I didn't hear the gospel. So I just sat there. Now, if you'd asked me, I'd been defensive and told you, you know, if you'd asked me about my faith or who I was or if I was Christian, I, I would have been defensive. And I would have said, of course. And, you know, because it was an identity issue. But there was nothing inside me. And to me, in that state, I couldn't tell the difference. That's the nature of faith, by the way. On, on the other side, when you're still an unbeliever, you can't tell the difference between you and the Christian. Only after you come to faith can you look back and realize, oh, I see what changed. I understand the difference now. That's how people are in the world. Sometimes you will find someone who has been in church for years, and yet they have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. Somehow they hung around believers, and yet they never encountered Jesus in a true way. And those are the saddest examples of following Jesus without knowing. Most of the time, I think the pretend Christians are the ones who show up only when times are tough. They'll come into church after a disaster, after a personal crisis, Christmas, Easter. You know, They have the routine. And those are good times, by the way. I don't put that down at all. If you come to church because you're having a crisis, that's a really good time to come to church because God uses trials and crises in our lives to wake us up and to get us to understand an eternal perspective. But if a person who is in that mindset comes to church occasionally under those circumstances and never goes any further in their pursuit of Christ... If their pursuit of Christ or of God generally during trial never goes deeper than seeking a security blanket or looking for a foxhole to dive into because the bullets are flying, then they never learn the lesson of the trial. They actually waste the opportunity of that trial to know the truth. And I think that's why the teaching of the Word of God in general within the church is so essentially important. won't surprise anybody in here that I think that teaching the Bible is important. But it's why I do it. It's why this church does it consistently and with emphasis, because that's the only way that an unbeliever can hide out in a church. It's when the Word of God is absent. The only way an unbeliever can come into a church building and sit there week after week after week and feel comfortable in that environment is if the Word of God is not preached properly, not preached consistently, not preached boldly. That's the only way it works. Because either the Word of God will make an impression on your heart such that you recognize the truth of it, you see yourself as a sinner, you see yourself in danger of receiving the wrath of God, and so as a result, you repent, you fall on your knees, and you accept the grace of God in the face of Christ. That's one option. But if not that, in the face of consistent, relentless, you might say, preaching of the Word of God, the only other option is that that Word will weigh on that hard heart in such a way that they cannot sit under its weight for very long. Sooner or later, they become restless. Sooner or later, they're uncomfortable with the reminders of Jesus and the reality of the eternal and the consequences of sin and the need to repent. And those things just aren't comforting to the person who's resisting them, as they shouldn't be. And so as they sense that discomfort growing, eventually they, they too make a move, but instead of falling to their knees, they jump to their feet and they escape the building and they don't come back, generally. 
The one thing that an unbeliever cannot do under the proper preaching of the Word of God is sit and feel comfortable. And you don't want them to. So that's why we preach. Because it's the worst possible outcome to let someone live in this state of confusion in which they perceive themselves to have the very thing they do not have. Because in the environment they're in, that distinction is not made clear. And I don't need to make it in some kind of mechanical way. If I just preach this reliably and consistently, it does it. That's the power of the Word. Having said that, I will also say that the study of God's Word does not magically erase the evil that's lurking in our hearts. It equips us to deal with it as we walk with Christ. But first, of course, by hearing the Word of God, a person is brought to saving faith. That changes the course of their eternal future. And only God's Word can do that. It awakens a dead heart. Following that, you gain an appreciation of who this God is who has awoken you and you want to disciple under Him. You want to follow Him. And so, rather than being content to be an admirer, you become His disciple. It's a fundamental shift. But more than that, what the Word of God does, it is the source of our sanctification. It's not sufficient that we preach it here to get you saved and then once you're saved, we take you to a small group and we talk about so-and-so's latest you know, 40-page pamphlet and we call that a study. What do we do? If we believe in the Word of God to save people, why do we abandon it when it's time to sanctify people? The Scripture says that the Spirit living in us takes the Word of God and impresses it on our hearts in such a way that He may expose to ourselves that ugliness that is inside everyone. So that as you enter into a study of God's Word, you come face to face with your own sin nature in contrast to the glory of a holy and just God. And in doing so, the Spirit convicts you of that of that growing awareness of your shortcomings, so that he can work with you to scrape them away. You know, the old metaphor of working with metal, molten metal, taking metal and putting it under fire so that it melts and the dross, the things that are impure, float to the surface and they're scraped off. Well, that heating process is analogous to trial and testing and the study of God's Word so that it brings conviction. You know, the stuff that's not fun. It's not your best life now. It's looking at that part of your life you'd rather forget. But friends, you forget it at your own expense because then you live with it. The whole idea is to get rid of it. To be washed by the water of the Word so that in time you are more and more like the one you say you want a disciple under. That's the idea. So it's not surprising that that many in this larger crowd were not believing. But you're probably, I would think, surprised to know that some of those who were formerly considered his students, his disciples, that smaller group of maybe dozens or hundreds, Some of them were not believing. Remember, believing in Jesus as a Messiah was not a prerequisite for becoming his disciple. Some of Jesus' disciples believed in him before they followed, men like Andrew. And others probably didn't come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah until after they were already a disciple for some period of time. I would suppose that perhaps Matthew might actually fit in that category. But then for the same reason, there were some who Jesus called as his disciple yet who never came to faith in that time. We see evidence of this in John's gospel. Uh, Jesus in John 6 is teaching that his followers must eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's speaking spiritually, not literally. But as he does so, there are some in the crowd who seem to follow him, but there's others, some of his disciples, who don't get what he just said, and they object to it. They thought he was calling for cannibalism. As they hear this, they start to grumble, and they start to reconsider what it meant to follow this man, and they seem to think, you know what, we've bet on the wrong horse. This guy's a crackpot. We're going to have to 
Stop it here. And so this is what Jesus says to him at that point in John 6, 64. He says, But there are some of you who do not believe, speaking to his disciples. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said, There are some of you who do not believe. And he said, that's why I said to you that no one can come to me unless it's permitted, unless it is granted from the Father. What he's saying is this. In your physical ability, you can follow me. But in a spiritual sense, you can't unless the Father grants it. There's a distinction. Spiritual matters are in the purview of the Father. Physical matters, well, then you have some some options there. But they aren't the important ones. They're not the ones that matter. These people were following only in the physical sense. They were disciples only in the the simplest terms. They didn't know him. And as soon as what he said was too challenging, and as soon as following him became inconvenient, they're out of there. They fell away. And that's the expected result. Because if your relationship with Christ is not rooted in your faith in him as your Savior, then sooner or later you're going to lose interest in what he's offering. I'm sure you remember the parable that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 8 on the sower and the four soils. With the seed, remember in that parable, Jesus taught that the word of God falls, as it were, on the human heart like a seed falling on ground. And in the way that it falls, the results of that fall would depend on the state or the nature of that person's heart, on the response they had to the word of God. So some hearts were soft and prepared and they received the word truly and they believed in it sincerely. They embraced the truth. They received Jesus. They become a lifelong disciple and they bear much spiritual fruit. On the other end, you had people who were so hard-hearted, the Word of God wouldn't even penetrate. They hear, but they don't listen, like your teenagers. They hear, but they aren't listening. And as a result, they reject the message, and they remain spiritually dead. And in the future, they'll experience the consequences of their unbelief. But those two conditions sat on either end of a spectrum. And in between them, in that parable, Jesus also had two additional conditions or outcomes that sat right in the middle. And the middle conditions are so murky and hard to decipher that it's easy to misunderstand them. But I want to look at one of them tonight that applies to what we're seeing in the case of these disciples. That second condition that described a heart responding to the word in a way that looked really promising at first. The heart heard the word of God and responded. They had interest. They might have even shown some degree of commitment. But then, as that parable goes on, in difficult times... Under stress, under trial, they withdrew their support. I think that's what we're seeing here with this example of disciples who were not believers. And as a result, they're revealing themselves by, to be unbelieving by the fact that they cannot take what Jesus says when it conflicts with their personal desires for what they expected. Increasingly, and I think sadly, I think that's the state of the church worldwide. And, of course, there's no way for us to put statistics to this. We don't have any way to discern this accurately. But it's my conjecture, and I think it's clear in Scripture that in the last days this will be the case, that in churches around the world we are amassing in buildings people, disciples, as it were, so-called disciples, but they've come for entirely earthly reasons. They haven't entered because of a faith that's genuine and rooted in the Word of God. They're coming looking for something Jesus is offering, or so they think. And in times of testing, or when their earthly dreams are not fulfilled, they move on, or they fall away altogether. 
How is that possible again? Well, because if the Word of God is not faithfully preached on Sunday in those churches, and as a result, they're able to come in with whatever misconceptions they have and keep those misconceptions, well, there's nothing in the room changing them. So when the miracles they're promised fail to materialize, they don't get rich like they're told, they don't get healthy like they're told, they don't have all kinds of other signs and wonders that they're expecting, well, then they just go back to everyday life. They become part of the apostasy that Paul said would happen in the last days. They are unbelieving, quote, disciples who leave the church because they never truly came to Jesus. And then, finally, this pattern of unbelievers amongst all three groups. You had the big group, you have the disciples, and then you have that smallest group, the apostles. Even in that group, there were both believers and unbelievers. One of the twelve, we're told in Scripture, was not believing in Jesus either, Judas Iscariot. John tells us this also in the same part of John we were just in, John 6, in 667. Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Now remember, his group of disciples, however many dozen or hundred there were, are starting to walk away in that moment. And Jesus is looking at his twelve saying, am I going to lose you too? And of course, Simon Peter, always Johnny on the spot with the good answer, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, or you could say corrected them. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now Jesus handpicked these guys. Now, he's already said earlier in this passage, I knew who, were, who was believing and who wasn't, which means he also knew which one of the twelve was not believing. He picked him to become part of that inner circle. Yet he says you're a devil, which is a way of saying you are of your father the devil, which is a way of saying you are an unbeliever. Much later in our study of Matthew, we're going to come back to the question of why does Jesus select an unbeliever to be among his 12 apostles? But the point to understand tonight is simply this, that those who have followed Jesus at all levels have always included those who are not what they seem. That should not shock us. And in our context today, we don't have apostles, but pick some substitute position in the church and you'll have the same answer. There are pastors teaching in pulpits who are not believers. There are elders in churches who are not believers. There are worship leaders who are not believers. And we don't necessarily know who these people are. I'm not saying it's always you're easy to see. What I am saying is you can never assume that because someone's following or calls himself a disciple or even has a position of authority that that tells you what's in their heart. There are people out there who are not true. There may be people in here who are not that way. Perhaps you thought sitting in a building made you a Christian or because your parents were Christian or because you were raised Christian or because someone told you you were Christian because you married a Christian. Who knows how it's come to you in that respect. Jesus allows those who are not believers to accompany him. He allows those who do not know him truly to sit among those who do. That's why we even have the parable of the wheat and the tares, which we cover later in this gospel, in which we're told Jesus knows there are two types in the world who both appear to be his. But one is not. And he is asked in that parable, should we go out, Lord, the angel says, should we go out and should we get rid of all those who are not yours amongst those who are? And Jesus says, no, don't do that. In the parable, it's because you might uproot the wrong ones. In real life, it's because you can't tell the difference. So you're bound to hurt someone. But more importantly, it's because it's not what Jesus wants. Why does he want 
some of these people to remain amongst us? Well, principally so that they might know the truth. For the time of judgment has not yet arrived. We are still in the time of salvation. There's still the opportunity. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may have seemed to come short of it. That's our goal right now. Our goal is not to root them out and kick them out. Our goal is to love them and in that process bring them to faith. But before you even start that, ask yourself, what is it you're following Jesus for? Did someone promise you some wealth or health or trick, smells and bells in some kind of high church cathedral? What is it that you came for? Mysticism? Romanticism? Entertainment? Well, I know you're not here for that. Um, If those things are your principal cause for your relationship with Jesus, let me submit to you, you do not have a relationship with Jesus. On the other hand, if you know yourself, as the scriptures describe it, as a person who has nothing good in the heart, who is eternally evil in their heart, as all human beings are, where there is nothing but sin, nothing but disgust of yourself for what you know you do and how you think and talk and all the rest, and you know that's not God-pleasing and you know there's an accountable day coming where someone's going to hold you to the law. He's going to say, why have you been that way? And then that someone is going to be Jesus Christ. If you know that's true, well, then you have every reason to repent and accept his mercy because he hasn't come in judgment yet. And you're not dead yet. So there's still time. That's coming to know Christ as a disciple, as a believer, not simply as an admirer. That's what we want this church to do. Make men and women come the full distance to Christ by the word of of God so that they then in turn become an ambassador for Christ. That's what we want to do. Nothing fancier than that. But we don't want to leave anybody behind either. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to any heart in here today, Father, who has heard this message and now understands the difference between following you and knowing you, I pray, Father, that if they have not come to know, they will know now. And if they have followed from a distance, they will come close by the blood of Christ before the holy and just God of the universe who offers salvation in him alone. For any in this room, Father, who know Christ but have not followed him, the opposite problem, we pray, Father, for repentance and for a renewed commitment to be his disciple. For all of us, Father, we pray that the word of God would forever be the lamp, the direction for our life, the compass for how we live, the rule for our life and all that we do in it. Father, I pray that the word of God would always be that central focus in our walk so that we would never be taken away by things that would cause us to see Christ wrongly or to serve him less than fully. And Father, I pray for this church that as a body we might grow together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ so that we might serve you in the days that remain and bring each and every living soul that you appoint to us into the kingdom. Let us have the privilege to serve you with that outcome as we seek your face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.